Okay, so Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is what we're looking at and this is from the 84 NIV. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does a man gain from his labour at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever turning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, uh, to the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Wisdom is meaningless. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and uh, to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow and the more knowledge, the more grief. That's God's word. Righto. G'day again, folks. Can I just say, this is the most impressive lectern thing I've ever seen in my life. Whoever made this, you should be congratulated. This is awesome. Oh, it's true. <laughs> so you could really whack this, couldn't you? <laughs> um, and can I also say um, that uh, the generosity of you blokes um, uh, since we've been down here, really quite amazing. So thank you for that. And Ed particularly, mate, thanks for the chariot. Been driving Ed's old falcon around the place all week. It's been wonderful. It's like an armchair on wheels. It's lovely, mate. Very comfortable. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, how about we pray, blokes, and we'll get stuck into this, into Ecclesiastes 1. Let's pray for a tick. Uh, Father God, you are um, overwhelmingly generous and gracious to us. Um, Lord, um, whether we're young or old, um, We've plenty of times um, fallen into sin and uh, made catastrophic errors in judgement and decision making and yet your patience and your grace um, abide with us still. Father, we thank you for that patience and grace and Lord, we ask that you'd extend that to us again today as we look at this part of your word and, and Father, we do thank you for it. We thank you that you're a speaking God 
that you are noisy and loud and make yourself known to us. Father, my prayer today as we look at this um, part of your word is that you'd give us um, wisdom and understanding. For that, Lord, we'll need your spirit. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, open our ears and our hearts and our minds so that we might uh, understand something of your word that we haven't previously understood. And by understanding that, be blessed and transformed so that our lives more closely resemble the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Righto. Uh, now, I, I may not uh, look like it uh, all the time, but I have an exercise bike in my garage and uh, I'm going to need it when I get back home because Tasmania is full of good food and I think I've single-handedly tried to resuscitate the Tasmanian retail economy on my way around here in the last week. Uh, So I really need my exercise bike when I get home and when I uh, get a chance to jump on the old exercise bike and have a go, uh, you know, you can sort of do uh, one of three things when when you're exercising. I can get on the bike and just pedal really slowly and not do a whole heap and then when I get off the exercise bike, I'm not sweating, I don't look like I've been exercising, uh, mostly because I haven't, uh, or I can get on it and I can have a bit more of a go and just kind of you know, get the heart rate going a little bit, work up a little bit of a sweat, or I can you know, go flat out and really start, you know, I sweat kind of like a, a drug courier trying to get through customs, you know, that kind of an exercise. And here's what I've noticed. Um, no matter how hard I pedal, uh, I get off and I look around my garage and I realise I haven't gone anywhere. And the, and the bike can tell me I've just done 30 k's but I haven't. I'm still in Menai or Barton Ridge, which is where we live. You know? and I, and it's really quite uh, frustrating and it strikes me that an exercise bike is a really good metaphor for life. Okay, so just have a think about it for a second. right? You mow your lawn when it comes to... Okay, in winter, nothing grows here particularly, but anywhere. right? My lawn doesn't grow in winter. But in summer, you mow your lawn and a week later, what do you notice? Jolly thing needs mowing again. It looks as rough as anything, right? Uh, You you, you empty your bin. A week later, what happens? The bin's full again. It needs emptying again, right? It just keeps going around. Our our wives, I think, perhaps notice this next one more than we do, but our laundry baskets. You know, you you come home from work, you chuck all your dirty old clothes in the laundry basket and it fills up, and usually it's our wives, you know, wash it, hang it out, bring it back in, fold it up, iron it, put it in the drawers, and what happens the next day? Jolly laundry basket's full again. Bills are the same. You know, you, you, you get a bunch, a handful of bills and you think to yourself, this is, oh, this is really quite depressing. You go to the post office or wherever it is, or online, you pay all your bills and you have a little smile on your face. You know that, that self-satisfied kind of smile, the little ripper, I've paid that jolly electricity bill and then what happens? How long does that smile last for? It lasts as long as it takes you to get to your letterbox the next day. Right, because there's always another one in there, isn't there? Uh, or it's, it's your, your office or your room, you know, you your room's untidy. You're a young bloke. You know, your parents ask you to clean your room and you think, why? why? It's my room. What, what, is, what do you care that my room's tidy? You know? But you tidy your room uh, or it's your office at work and you, you, you look at your office and it's a mess and you think, this is terrible, disorganised. So you spend like an hour and a half in there and you throw a heap of stuff out and you look back and you think, man, this is awesome. This, I look so professional. And you go in there three days later and it looks like the cat has had a fight with the dog on your desk. You know, it's terrible. This is like... Now, this is the kind of reality of life. Uh, this is, I think the planet is a bit like a, we could call it the great spherical exercise bike of the Milky Way. This is what life just kind of just keeps going like this. Now, early on in life, you don't really notice 
that life is like an exercise bike. Because when you're young, you keep learning new things all the time and, and life can actually be pretty exciting. But sometime or other, it dawns on you that life can actually be pretty frustrating. And if you don't make sense of that frustration, that frustration can end up being depression because some days there doesn't actually seem to be a whole lot of point to what we're doing here. And even if you're a Christian and you know that you are loved by God and you know you're made by God and you know that Jesus died for you and took your place in death, you know that God's given you his spirit, even if you know all that and that's you, and because of those things you actually have a bit of a a better handle on life uh, than most of of your friends who perhaps aren't Christians, there are still days when you feel like you're on an exercise bike pedalling your guts out, going nowhere. Uh, maybe it's because you know, you're at school, you're having a really hard time at school, things just are not going the way you thought they were going to go uh, and school's difficult or it could be that you're at uni and you've finished your uni degree but there's no jobs for people with the degree you've got or you're halfway through a trade and you wake up one morning and you think, actually I don't want to be a plumber, I want to be an electrician or you've finished your trade and you're working and you really don't like your job. You thought you were going to like your job, but you really don't like it. Or you don't have a job anymore and you really want a job. Or you're married, or you're single and you think, Joe, I want to be married. Or you're married and you think, crikey, I want to be single. You know, what, it might, whatever it is, there are all sorts of pe- things going on. There are any number of reasons why sometimes we feel like life is just like this exercise bike that we just are pedalling and pedalling and pedalling and pedalling and getting nowhere. And some days, if we're honest with ourselves, some days we would be quite happy for Jesus to turn up and just be done with it. Thanks. I'd just like to check out. Anytime you like Jesus, come back now. would be good. Or some days we think maybe it would be nice just to fall off the perch quietly and calmly so I can get to heaven and be done with this because it's just so frustrating. Some days that's what life's like. Now wouldn't it be good if the Bible had something to say to that, if the Bible had something to kind of say, well, look, here's how to understand, here's how to make sense of this 70 or 80 or however many years God gives us to live on his planet. Well, he, apparently it does. And that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. Ecclesiastes, as far as I can figure, is the biblical equivalent of a slap across the face with a wet salmon. Uh, it's, a, it's a very bracing book, Ecclesiastes. It kind of... Uh, If you're a bit dazed by life, Ecclesiastes kind of slaps you back to reality quicker than you can figure out how to spell Ecclesiastes, which, let me tell you, typing it out is very, very frustrating. Um, But Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live with the the limitations of this life, the the fleeting, transient, all-too-brief nature of this life without being overwhelmed by it. Uh, I think this is arguably the, the most difficult book in the Bible to understand, I think, and yet its overall message is beautifully simple. See, what Ecclesiastes tells us is that life is a fleeting mist. You can't fully understand everything. Uh, it's sometimes very difficult, but God is there. And God generously gives us Many, many good things. Work, creative ideas, a wife, sex, a family, friends, food, wine, beer, wisdom, folly. All the things that give us pleasure. 
God gives us all those things and Ecclesiastes says to us, enjoy the gifts of your creator and die with a smile on your face knowing that this creator is sovereign and perfectly just and merciful. That's kind of what Ecclesiastes is saying and Lord willing, over the next couple of hours we'll unpack a bit of what that means. So have a look at Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1. We'll start there. He starts by saying, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, uh, I used to think that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon when I was a young bloke, but as I've uh, you know, read it a fair bit and studied it a fair bit over the past few years, I've, I've changed my mind and I don't, think it was, I don't think it was written by Solomon anymore. I could be completely wrong. Uh, my grandfather was a, a, a brethren preacher and he would be disgusted that I don't think it was written by Solomon anymore, but he's home with the Lord now and I'll talk to him about it later. Uh, there are two voices in Ecclesiastes. Uh, there's a narrator who sort of starts the book and ends the book uh, and then in the middle of it from right near the start of chapter 1 to right near the end of chapter 12 um, there's this, our narrator is quoting a bloke who we only know mysteriously as the teacher. Uh, and this wise teacher I, I don't think is, is Solomon but he knows a lot about Solomon and he wants us to think about Solomon for the first few chapters. So the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes sound a bit like Solomon's talking to us, but as the book goes on, this wise teacher adopts a few different characters as he looks at life from a few different angles. And he does this so that we'll have a, a bit of a wider sort of perspective on life. So if you think of him a bit like an actor in a, in a movie series, though, so think of Mike Myers... Uh, in the Austin Powers movies. Now, some of you will have seen the Austin Powers films. If you haven't seen them, you need to go and get them out. They're very, very funny. But this is the same guy. See, Mike plays Dr Evil, gold member, the big fat Scottish bloke, and Austin Powers, and he plays about another half a dozen characters as well. It's all the same dude, but he's in, he's in different costumes and different kinds of you know, makeup. and I'm not sure that anyone's ever compared the wise teacher in Ecclesiastes to Austin Powers before, but that's where I'm going with this, so you just have to deal with it. Okay? So that's, I that, think one bloke here in Ecclesiastes, but adopting different characters, like with different costume, different makeup, but still saying the same sort of stuff. And uh, in verse 2, we get to meet this guy, this teacher. We can say goodbye to Mike now. So he says, uh, here's the big idea of the book, right? Uh, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, he says. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And he repeats this phrase over and over again. The word meaningless appears 38 times in 12 chapters in this book. Now this word is a bit of a problem and it's something that Christians have been wrestling with for a very, very long time. See, as people have translated this word over the years, they've struggled to find an English word that fully captures everything that the Hebrew word means. And so some, if you grew up with, uh, say, a King James Bible, I grew up with an old King James Bible, you remember that it says vanity. Vanity, remember some of you blokes have grown up with that? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Uh, other versions have words like transient or fleeting and the NIV, which perhaps some of us have got here, says meaningless. Now the Hebrew word, I'll have to say it properly in case there's some Hebrew people here, but it's chevel, right? Um, it's a guttural kind of sound and since half of you blokes are Dutch, you're used to the sounding thing, so I've got to say it like that. Um, but the, this, 
I'll just say it like an Aussie now, Hevel, right, uh, is uh, used a bunch of times in the Old Testament and it means something like breath or mist uh, or vapour. Vanity is a possibility, yes, breeze. Uh, It's something that's transient or hard to grasp. So let me give you a couple of other places in the Old Testament where it turns up because this kind of helps us understand what this word's getting at. So Psalm 144 says, uh, man is like a breath. That's Hevel, same word. Man's like a breath. Uh, His days are like a fleeting shadow. That's one. Get this one, Genesis 4. Same word, okay? Genesis 4, this one is the one that kind of gets it. This gets it for me. Hevel in Ecclesiastes is the same word that we translate able in Genesis 4. Right? Now you think to yourself, crikey, that's, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because Abel, of course, was Adam and Eve's son who was killed by his brother, Cain. So Adam and Eve wake up one morning and Abel's there. Abel goes out and doesn't come back home. So he's here one moment and gone the next. He's Hevel. He's a, he's a mist. He's a, he's a fleeting thing. Here one moment, gone the next. Now there's no way that Genesis 4 is telling us that Abel, the man, was meaningless. Right? That, that's not what the Bible's saying to us. And so all of a sudden, when you, it's the same word, you start thinking, hang on a second, maybe meaningless doesn't quite get what this word means in Ecclesiastes. Then you get to the New Testament... And we have the Greek version of this same word. Uh, it turns up a few places and our understanding, I think, is kind of deepened again. So Paul uses the word in Romans 8 when he says that creation is subject to frustration. It's the same word, as a result of sin. Now, there's no way Paul thinks creation is meaningless because everything else that Paul writes would say the opposite of that, wouldn't it? Right, so he doesn't think it's meaningless, but he does think it's transient and fleeting and very difficult to comprehend. It drives us mad and it doesn't do what we want it to do because of sin. James picks up the same idea. Uh, James says, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist. You're a Havel. That appears for a little while and then vanishes. And James isn't saying to us that our lives are meaningless but he is saying that they're a mist, they're a vapour. They're here one moment and gone the next. And so I think the teacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us about the reality of life under the sun. And so it seems to me that using the word meaningless here as the NIV does, I think, is actually a bit too much. Because as the book goes on, the teacher talks about joy and satisfaction in all sorts of things. talks about it in, in work, in family, in sex, in wisdom, in folly, in food and wine and all these different things. And so I think to translate it as meaningless here sets us up to interpret the rest of the book in that framework. And at several points he clearly doesn't think that life is meaningless because he keeps telling us that there's lots of joy and lots of satisfaction to be found in life. Right? What he is saying is that life and everything about it is fleeting. It's hard to grasp. It's, it's like a vapour, it's elusive. Trying to get a handle on life is a bit like walking around Launceston in August when it's covered in a blanket of fog. It's a bit like walking around trying to grab hold of the fog. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. Don't do it if you, if you haven't because you just get locked up. 
because it will look stupid, but you know, it would be very frustrating because you couldn't actually do it, could you? Right? So I think it might be better to understand verse 2 like this. Mist and vapour. Mist and vapour, says the teacher. Life is a mist and a vapour. It's hard to understand. It's the merest of breaths. It's fleeting and you can't hang on to it. The problem for most of us, though, is that we are so used to hearing Ecclesiastes start with the word meaningless that it shapes how we read the rest of the book. Most of us will probably have had a crack at reading Ecclesiastes somewhere along the line over the years. Most of us will have stopped at chapter 1. Because you, you, you read and you go, really, meaningless? Yeah, I'll read Mark. <laughs> you know, like a bit easier to understand. Uh, and uh, I think that what ends up happening is that most of us kind of have this idea that Ecclesiastes is probably a bit depressing. But once you shake yourself loose of thinking that life is meaningless, Ecclesiastes goes from being quite a depressing book to actually being immensely liberating. Um, I have had to change the way I understand this book over the past few years as I've spent a bit of time in it. Um, my prayer is that, that you guys, over the course of today, will have a fresh look at it as well. And the teacher rips into his examination of life and its brevity in verse 3. So we've got the big idea of the, the fleeting nature of life, verse 2. Here's the big question that this book is all about. And the big question is this. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Right? What do they gain? That's the big question. So what do I profit? Uh, where is the economic benefit? Where is the social benefit? I work really hard. What do I gain? Now, most of us would say that we don't really want to be rich. I've never, I don't meet many Christians who say, Steve, I want to be rich. That's me. I'm a Christian and I want to be loaded. We don't say that, do we? We have a Christian code word for it. You know what it is? We say, I'd like to be comfortable. And that's a Christian code word for I want to be loaded and never, ever have to worry about money. But we don't say it like that because that sounds really ungodly and we like our mates to think that we're quite godly. So we say, oh, I just like to be comfortable but it means loaded, right? Loaded. Um, so uh, because we want to be comfortable, that impacts our lives. And so we work long hours. Uh, when there's work on, particularly if you're a tradie, you guys will know, sometimes you knock out six-day weeks, six-and-a-half-day weeks. Most of you will have done the odd seven-day week here and there when there's work on, right? Uh, but we're not all chasing money, are we? because some of us have jobs that perhaps don't end up making us rich. I have one of those jobs. This is not the job to have if you want to be a rich man or drive a Porsche. I would really like a Porsche. I have the wrong job to have a Porsche. Um, and that's okay. Uh, some of you guys will have jobs that aren't going to make you rich, but you still ask the question, what do I gain? And so maybe for you it's a reputation, or it's influence, or it's status, or perhaps a bit of power, or fame, or pleasure. And this idea of seeking for gain starts early in life and it doesn't stop. So when you're in high school, you are perhaps seeking to gain popularity. You want to be the, you know, the kingpin in the playground or you want the best looking girlfriend or you want the best mark in your leaving certificate or whatever the HSC is called down here. What is it called? Yeah, that thing, right. Um, school teacher knows the answer. Oh, good. Uh, that's, I'm glad you do know the answer. That is a good thing. Um, so maybe that's what you want. You want to gain the best mark. As you get a bit older, 
the gain thing changes. Do you want to gain a really nice house, a really big house, or a, a better car, or you want, or you want a, some status in your community? For Christian blokes, we want status in our church. We'd like to be asked to be an elder. As you get older again and you're 60, 70, what you are seeking to gain usually is the respect of the younger men in the church. And sometimes with that respect, if you're honest, there's a degree to which you'd actually like the younger blokes to fear you a little. Fear what you think. Because your opinion has weight in your church community. Right? What do I, that question, what do I gain, starts being asked early and it doesn't stop. It keeps going. See, age is largely irrelevant. We all have this tendency to ask, verse 3, what do I gain from my hard work? Now, the bad news, the answer for this, the bad news is in verse 11. Do you guys remember the old fisherman's friend ad with the, the chick in that inappropriate red vinyl jumpsuit? Do you remember the ad when she slaps that dude across the face with the tuna? Do you get that ad down here? It's a great ad. It's really, really funny. But we can probably take her off now. She's distracting. So, um, verse 11... You're a bad man, Daniel. Turn that off. <laughs> Who put that slide up there? Um, uh, verse 11 is a bit like being slapped with a tuna, right? For all our vain attempts at gaining wealth or status or power or fame or reputation, look at verse 11. No one remembers the former generations. No one remembers the former generations. Even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Do you guys remember Douglas Billion? Does that name ring a bell to you? He was a really wealthy publisher. was on the board of the US PGA and kind of ran the scouting movement in the States for years and years. Douglas Billion, does that name ring a bell? Do you remember Russell Train? No? He was the head of the World Wildlife Fund for probably 20 years. Remember him? Do you remember Tom Sims? Does that name ring a bell? He was like the father of skateboarding and snowboarding. He was like the world champion skateboarder back in the 70s, world champion snowboarder in the 80s. Like he started the whole snowboarding thing. You don't remember him? All those guys were famous and they were all in the paper last week. They were in the New York Times. You know, you think to yourself, hey, if you're in the New York Times, you've made it, haven't you? Do you know where they were in the New York Times? They were in the obituaries column because they're all dead and you've never heard of them and they were famous. Right? That's what this guy's talking about. See, for the vast majority of people, even dudes who are famous, world champion skateboarder, world champion snowboarder, well, you know, ran the World Wildlife Fund. Who cares? You've never even heard the dude's name. Even for all these people, the vast majority of people are only ever going to be remembered by their close family. And you separate that a few generations. How many of you could name your great, great, great grandparents? Not many. Maybe the odd anorak here, but I can't. And I, you know, I like my family, I could, but I couldn't do it. There are the odd exceptions to this, of course. You know, your Julius Caesars, your Elvises, all those kind of people, but 99.99% of people who've ever lived have been completely forgotten. No one remembers their names. No one notices they're gone. They're faded names on a tombstone. And you and I, brothers, we need to face this fact. Within a hundred years, or if, if, say in a hundred years, 
unless Jesus has turned up before then, which is, a, which is a possibility, in a hundred years, if Jesus hasn't turned up, almost no one will remember that you and I lived. There will be no holiday to mark our death. There will be no monuments celebrating our magnificent achievements. We will be lucky to be a memory. So remember the big question. Verse 3, what do I gain from all my hard work? And the teacher's answer is, you're asking the wrong question. Right? That is not the question to be asking. See, the point of life is not gain. He who dies with the most toys, guess what? Still dies. That's it. Now later in chapter 9, he'll tell us that we turned up naked and we get to go the same way. And maybe you've noticed, fellas, in the shower, but you don't have many pockets when you've got nothing on, so you can't take anything with you. Right? And let me tell you, this is actually a wonderfully liberating thing. If the point of life is not what do we gain, all of a sudden the pressure to perform and succeed at everything we do is lifted. Now I think uh, what he's getting at is this idea from verse 4 onwards. Uh, Now listen to this. this. Listen to the cyclical nature of creation and life. Listen to what he goes here in verse 4 and then we'll look at his conclusion. See, generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets and hurries back to where it starts. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and around it goes, ever returning on its course. The streams, look, flow into the sea. Yet the sea's never full. To the place where the streams came from, there they return again. What he's saying is people are born, people, are, people die. The only thing that stays the same is the earth and it'll still be here long after we're gone unless Jesus has turned up since that, you know, in the middle of that somewhere. The sun in verse 5 goes around and around. Every day it just does the same thing. It's not trying to get hotter. It's not trying to go quicker. It's not trying to be more efficient. The wind in verse 6, it just blows this way one day, blows the other way the next day. It's not trying to gain in strength. It's not trying to get where it's going any quicker. It's just going around. Water, it rains. The rain falls into a stream, goes down a mountain, hits a river. River goes into the sea. On the way, some of it evaporates. When it gets into the sea, some more evaporates, so it ends up in the sky. The atmospheric conditions change. Clouds get heavy, the atmospheric pressure drops and it rains. What do you know? Where's the rain go? Into a stream, into the river, into the sea. And the same thing just happens again and again and again. And I think he's pointing us to creation and he's saying to us, look, creation doesn't ask what is to be gained from all its hard work. It just keeps going in this rhythm and cycle that God gave it. And what a contrast that is to us. We keep asking, what do we gain from all our hard work? And we run around the place like chooks with our heads cut off, trying to attain the unattainable. And then we sit down and we say to ourselves, gee, why is life so frustrating? Because we're trying to attain the unattainable. That's the point of verse 8 to 10. Look at verse 8. He says, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which anyone can say, Look, here's something new. No, it was here already. It was here long ago. It was here before our time. You know, in verse 8, While we're all getting weary, while we're all hard at work, our words are many, uh, more than one can say, our our eyes never have enough of seeing, our ears are never full of hearing and people are always saying, and they are, aren't they? 
You always hear people say, oh, this is a new idea. You know, this is a new angle to look at life. And it's not. It just isn't. What has been will be again. Right? There's nothing new. You might think it was new, but that just tells you you weren't paying attention five years ago when someone else thought it was new as well. Right? So the question, what do I gain, is the wrong question. And we need to grasp this because everything here is about getting bigger and better. Right? More money, bigger, better house, more prestigious job, better clothes, cooler clothes, a better university degree, a more expensive car, the latest I whatever from Apple. The, the, the number of men and women in our culture uh, who are having plastic surgery has gone through the roof because people want to gain a better look or a better shape. Our wages have increased so much. And I know technically Tassie's in a recession. I know you've had you know, three quarters of negative growth. But you guys aren't starving. You know, we still have a lifestyle and a, and a standard of living that 99.8% of the world can only dream about. Right? Everything here is about getting bigger and better. And we are living the dream, baby. That's us. We are living the dream. And yet we have one of the highest rates of youth suicide in the world. I think we're number two. We have teenagers who can't cope with the pressure that our society puts on them and the number of teenagers who are self-harming has gone through the roof in the last ten years. Most teenagers, I think, have forgotten just how to be a teenage kid enjoying life. Too much pressure. We have a monumental percentage. It's up toward, It's getting towards 30% of people who are taking medication for depression and anxiety. In your churches tomorrow morning, as you look at your congregations, understand that about a quarter of them will be taking medication for depression. We have road rage. We have shopping trolley rage. <laughs> we do. Check it out. <laughs> Next time you're in the shops. It's serious. It's a big issue. Um, we have... Car park space rage. Crime increases every year. One of the things that you notice as you look at our culture is the stark absence of joy and the stark absence of satisfaction. And it's because our culture is asking the wrong question. It's not about what we can gain. A couple of years ago, um, uh, some friends at church... Uh, who were uh, very generous, lovely people, uh, helped us to have a holiday. And uh, so Nan and I were able to take our boys to Fiji. Um, and I want to tell you three things about Fiji. Some of you guys will have been to Fiji, so you might be familiar with this, but um, Fiji's quite a poor country. Uh, all the hotels and the touristy places are all quite flashy, but five seconds past them and it's, it's a, basically a third world country. Uh, the guy who drove us from the airport to the hotel we were staying in was on $2 an hour, um, which kind of tells you, and you know, he had a job, and not many people have jobs there. So 2 bucks an hour, just try and do the math on that for a second, you're not eating too well, are you? Right, 2 bucks an hour. Uh, it's a pretty poor place. But Fiji's unbelievably beautiful. Uh, if you've been there, you'll know this. It's, uh, the, you know, and we, we're used to, well, I'm, you know, from the mainland, I'm used to everything being brown, um, just, all the, just the shade of brown changes whereas you fly into Tassie and everything's this lush, beautiful green or it is at the moment. But Fiji's like that. Everything's this intense, rich green colour and there's 
you know, the fruit, like pawpaws and mangoes and watermelons, everything's you know, bright and colourful. It's a really colourful, beautiful place. But the third thing is Fiji time. Okay, so when we were in Fiji, I bought this clock that was, the clock had Fiji time on it. And I, I bought a clock not because we didn't have one, but because all the numbers on the clock were falling down to the bottom in a pile like that. Right? So that's the clock I've got at home. And because in Fiji, the time doesn't matter. Like it genuinely, seriously does not matter. You don't hear Fijians say, what's the time? Because no one cares. Right? It's like, uh, is it dinner time? Well, I don't know, are you hungry? If you're not hungry, it's not dinner time. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it can be quite frustrating at first because, you know, here when you order a coffee, if, it's, if the coffee doesn't come within a couple of minutes, you're like, what are they doing, growing the beans out the back? You know? <laughs> uh, in Fiji, when you order a coffee, it's, it will come when it's ready. And that could be five minutes. It could be 10, it could be 15. It depends on the conversation in the kitchen. You know, <laughs> right? uh, but it'll get there when it gets there. And, and uh, after a couple of days, though, uh, of being frustrated, you think, hang on a second, these guys are onto something. <laughs> no Fijians ever died of a heart attack from stress. Let me tell you. Obesity, maybe, but not stress. Um, <laughs> and Fiji time actually is flipping awesome. Like, it's a really, really good thing. Uh, the national speed limit is 80 Okay, so it's actually against the law to be in a rush, okay, which is a really cool thing. And when you drive around the place, most people drive at 50. Right? So they're even on Fiji time behind the wheel. Now, it could be because some of them may be a little bit stoned, I'm not sure, but they still drive around at 50 kilometres an hour. Right? No one even does 80. Right? It's only the Western tourists that do 80, and they're mad because the roads are appalling. Right? Anyway, um, but they walk in Fiji time. They walk really slowly. The first day we were there, right, I'm walking on this pathway around this resort that we're in, right, and I'm stuck behind these two Fijian blokes and they both looked like props. You know, they're like two axe handles wide, both of them, and so they filled the entire pathway, right, and I'm walking along behind these blokes. <laughs> and they're just sort of walking along quietly, just chatting with each other, laughing. They couldn't care less that I was behind them. They couldn't see behind them. Anyway, you know, and I, I'm in a rush, you know, and I... I'm th- why am I in a rush? I'm in a flippin' resort in Fiji. What am I rushing for? You know? Oh, that's right, I'm an idiot from Sydney. <laughs> that's why I'm rushing. Yeah. Anyway, a day or two later, I, I found myself walking along another pathway like it and, uh, and I, I was noticing things as I'm walking along, right? I was noticing a couple of little flowers in the garden and a little frog jumping over there and... Geckos, if you've been to Fiji, you know, there's geckos everywhere. You know, and you watch all these little geckos running around. All this. You know, and I, I wondered, I'm thinking, oh, gee, I hadn't seen that before. And then it dawned on me. I thought, oh, hang on a second. I'm walking like a Fijian. That's why I'm noticing stuff. Because normally, you're, you know, you don't notice anything. You know, the blinkers are on, you don't talk to anybody. But Fiji time, when you're in Fiji time, you notice everything. And it was just beautiful. Now, fellas, you don't have to put your hand up to this, but let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you feel like you're too busy? Do you feel like you'd like to slow down a bit and maybe smell the roses? My answer to both those questions is yes. And it's largely by my own choices. I would like to slow down and enjoy life more. But you know what? If I did that, my fear is that people would think I was lazy. Right? And my guess is that most of you guys are probably the same. If you're retired, maybe that's not you. But I know lots of retired people who are busier now than when they were working. 
You want to slow down and enjoy life but you feel pressured by all sorts of things not to. And half you guys are Dutch. Dutch guys make Aussie workaholics look lazy. right? Because you guys, you know how to work. You really knock those hours out. So you've got your whole culture that you've got to fight against with this stuff, with busyness. And so we press on. We're all so busy. We're all so important. We've all got such magic, you know, massive things to do. But we're all so tired. We're all so frustrated and sometimes we just wish the jolly ride would stop so we can get off for a second and rest. And I think Ecclesiastes is a really timely word for our generation because this tells us that we can and should get off the ride and slow down and smell the roses. Now it's not telling us that we can be lazy. Right? So blokes, please don't hear me saying that. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us to be lazy. It's not telling us to be foolish. But this teacher is telling us that if we understood reality, we'd relax more and we'd stress less. And that's what he's getting at from verse, uh, verse 12. Look at this, look at what he says here. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that's done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God's placed on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. All of them are fleeting, transient, vaporous, a chasing after the wind. What's crooked can't be straightened. What's lacking can't be counted. So here this teacher takes on Solomon's character. Okay, so everyone knew about Solomon. He was the wisest bloke in history. And so surely if anyone can make sense of this thing, Solomon can. And so he dons Solomon's costume and he tells us that he devoted himself to study and explore everything by wisdom and he saw that God had placed a heavy burden on people. And that kind of freaks us out a bit. We're not, we don't want to hear that God has placed a heavy burden on us and he sorts that out for us in a tick. But in the meantime he says that he's seen all that's done under the sun and he says everything, you know, it's a mist and a vapour. It's as sensible as chasing after the wind. Which is pretty dumb really, isn't it? Chasing the wind. And verse 15, though, gives us this little glimpse into reality. This is why life's frustrating, okay? What is crooked, what is twisted can't be straightened. Now, because of sin, our world is not like the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Okay? When you read that, you think, gee, I wish the Bible stopped at the back end of Genesis 2. That would have done me. That would be just nice, right? But it's not like that, is it? Our, what is twisted can't be straightened. And we don't accept that reality. And so what we do is we keep trying to straighten it out but it's twisted and it frustrates us that we can't straighten it out. We lack resources. What is lacking can't be counted. What that means is you need 20 bucks and you've got 15, but you keep counting your 15 bucks hoping that maybe you'll get to 20, but you can't count what's not there and it frustrates us. And it's not that God's being mean, it's that we refuse to accept the reality of the world we live in. That's what's going on. And so this teacher looks at both the wise and the foolish and he comes to the conclusion that people just don't want to accept reality and it makes them frustrated and it makes him sad. So he tells us that with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief, right? The more he understood the reality of life, the sadder he got. And he saw that people rushed about trying to gain, gain and gain only to discover that that is as sensible as chasing wind. And it made him sad. If only people would slow down and smell the roses. 
You know, Ecclesiastes 1 is really hard to understand, I think, if we look at it in isolation. You've got to remember that chapter divisions and verse divisions weren't there in the original. It was just like one long thing. And so I think sometimes we, because they're separated into chapters, we want everything to be neat and tidy in every chapter. It doesn't work like that. Uh, but he doesn't stop at the end of chapter 1, he keeps going and the first glimpse we get at any sort of answer in Ecclesiastes is the back end of chapter 2. Just flick over to chapter 2 and verse 24 and you'll see there he says, a man can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Now if you're one of those people who when you started reading Ecclesiastes got to the end of chapter 1 and stopped, you missed this, (laughs) which is a bummer because this is really cool. A man can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him, without God, who can eat and find enjoyment? So this is the first time this idea of enjoying God's gift appears in Ecclesiastes. And this guy will go back to this idea 12 more times or 13 more times as the book unfolds. And we'll have a look at that in the next talk and the third one. And I am certain that this is the key to understanding Ecclesiastes. It is a question of uh, gain or gift. That's what he's getting at. Is life about gain or is life about gift? We rush about asking what we can gain from all our hard work because at some level we vainly think that we can take it with us or it will give us status or meaning in life. And in the process we totally miss what God has given us as a gift Life, family, friends, work, creative ideas, your wife, sex, kids, food, wine, all the good things. And you know, you don't even have to be serious all the time. You, You can actually have a smile while you're here. That's an important thing to hear. I think we take ourselves far, far too seriously. You can have a smile while you're here. See, Ecclesiastes, I think, confronts us with this reality of life. It's not meaningless, but gee, it's short. It's brief. It can be over all too quickly. And if we don't accept that reality, it'll be frustrating. The joyful alternative to that is to accept that this is how it is and start living within the limits God has set for us. And once we do that, life suddenly stops being about what we can gain from all our hard work and starts being about enjoying the gifts that God so generously gives us. Now Jesus picks this idea up in the New Testament. He says a lot about this sort of stuff, doesn't he? Now he talks about the folly of gaining the world and losing your life. He talks about the, the idea that you know, since God can look after the birds and lilies in the field and they don't work, what on earth are you rushing about worrying about that stuff for? Instead, what does he tell us to do? He tells us to seek his kingdom, doesn't he? So like the rest of the Old Testament, every question that's thrown up in the Old Testament gets answered ultimately in Jesus. But let's just leave that for a second and hear what this teacher is saying to us in Ecclesiastes because this is really liberating. Monday morning, you guys wake up, you go off to work, whatever it is you're doing. doesn't matter if it's school or uni or you're working a trade, you're working in an office, whatever it is. Spend a moment on Monday morning meditating on this. Life is short, but our God is breathtakingly generous. So enjoy the gifts that God gives us. Live a bit in Fiji time. Walk a bit slower. Breathe. Have a smile. 
stop and smell the roses. It's, it's not about gain, it's about gift. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we thank you for this book. Uh, Lord, and while some of us, this idea of Ecclesiastes sort of being understood like this, Lord, for some of us it's going to be quite new. Uh, and new things are always kind of hard to digest and think about. So Lord, I pray that you give us the patience and the time to kind of think through this and ask if this is really what you're saying. God, you are amazingly generous and life really isn't about gain. It's about gift. Father, please forgive us for the for some of us, Lord, the way we've lived, the way we've run our business life, our working life, uh, where we've burnt the candle at both ends and missed a lot of the gifts that you've given us. Lord, uh, change us, please, and transform us so that we would be blokes who don't miss those good things and who see your gifts and enjoy them responsibly and thankfully. Uh, and Lord, I pray that as we keep going through Ecclesiastes the rest of the day that you'd uh, be with us and teach us things that we may need to hear. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.